everybody. Um, so we're continuing um, the Jewish marriage ceremony, some of the halachos of marriage. Uh, again, I'm first going to go over a little bit of what a wedding looked like 2,000 years ago, and then what it looks like today, and, and why we have the difference. Uh, you'll remember from uh, last week, hopefully, that uh, there were originally two different ceremonies that were separated by 12 months. Ceremony one is called Erusin ceremony, and ceremony two is called Nisuin ceremony. Uh, so Erusin in modern Hebrew means engagement, but in rabbinic Hebrew and even in the Torah, Erusin is not engagement, it is part one of the marriage. Now there's a whole tractate um, in the Talmud called Maseches Kedushin, Kedushin is the general word for marriage. Both parts of marriage are called Kedushin. Uh, and it mentions that erosin could actually be affected in three different ways. Meaning a man wants to betroth a woman with stage one of marriage. So one is kesef. He gives her something of minimal monetary value. Today that would be the ring, but that could be anything. That could be a piece of gum, anything worth a penny, a pruta. The second, which nobody does today, is he could marry her with a written document. He simply writes on the document, do you accept this document to be my wife? She accepts the document, and that's called kidushin vishtar. So there's kesef, there's money, or money's value. There is shtar. And the third way is very interesting, is actual physical consummation, marital intercourse. Now, this is a very, this is a very, very strange marital intercourse because, in point of fact, they're not yet married. It's the intercourse that will make them married. And you can imagine that Chazal actually didn't like this way. Chazal actually uh, said anyone that gets married by having intercourse for marriage, I don't mean living together will make you married, but I mean, but doing it for the purpose of marriage. Uh, is that's very improper behavior because you're actually having relations before you're married. So we don't do that. So of those three ways, only one way has really survived, and that is erusin is the chasan giving to the kala something of value. Now, again, insofar as the halacha is concerned, it doesn't have to be a ring. It could be a coin. It could be a cup. It could be a... Uh, could be a car, you know, if you want to do the other, other extremity and the like. The minog is that we do erusin through a ring, and I mentioned, well, I'll, discuss, I'll mention that again later, but that's erusin. So stage one was erusin, and there was actually no party. There was no party there. There were no sheva brachas, there was no party, there was no kisuba. Once a woman accepts the erusin in the presence of witnesses, she is a married woman, but the custom was she remained in her father's house for 12, 12 months. Now, this is Arusin, and the woman is called an Arusa. After 12 months, we, we come to the second stage of marriage, and the second stage of marriage, which completes the marriage, is called nisuin, and the woman is called a nisuah. 
So after Erusin, she is called an Arusa. After Nesuin, she is called a Nesua. In both cases, she is an Eishes Ish. She is a married woman. Now, here I'm going to add something I didn't mention the other week, and that is, what is Nesuin? Meaning, what, what needs to be done for part two? I only mentioned one opinion, but there are actually a few different opinions. All opinions say you have to recite Sheva Brachas. Seven blessings have to be recited as part of the Nesuin. Everybody agrees with that. But what do you need to do afterwards? So I'm now going to mention a whole bunch of opinions. And then I hope you'll see that the Jewish wedding ceremony tries to incorporate all of them. Okay. Method number one of Nesuin. Yichud seclusion, private seclusion, under which physical cohabitation would have been possible. So again, no one says Nesuin requires marital intercourse, but it requires what is called Yichud. Yichud is private seclusion. Hara'oi, which potentially, in other words, it's private enough that they theoretically could have relations. That also refers to how much time they have to have in the Yichud room. Right, so that's interpretation number one for what is Nesuit. Yichud hara'oi labia. Three words. Yichud hara'oi labia. Private seclusion in which intercourse would be theoretically possible. So again, this does not require physical consummation, but only ro'oi labia. That's interpretation number one. Interpretation number two, Nisuin is the chassan brings the kala into his home. So even if it's not private, but the concept is he brings her into his home. Now, be sure you can, can, can conceptualize the difference between the first thing and the second thing. The, second, the first thing is not emphasizing that the chassan brings her into his home. It simply emphasizes a seclusion that in which intercourse could have been possible. By contrast, the second is not emphasizing privacy at all, but it's emphasizing the chassan brings her into his home. So these are two different aspects of what is Nisuin. Third aspect of Nisuin, he spreads his cloak over her. He's called Talus. Talus is Labdavka Talus. Talus would mean his cloak, meaning the ceremony involves that he takes a garment that he's wearing and he spreads his Talus over her. That's a third interpretation of Nisuin. A fourth interpretation of Nisuin is he puts a veil on her. He covers her as if to say that from now on, not that she's stifled, but the concept is that there's a private relationship with, with him to the exclusion of other, of other men. So if you're counting, you'll notice I mentioned there are four different views as to what is Nesuin. According to all views, there are Sheva Brachas. Sheva Brachas is part of Nesuin. 
View number one, Yichud Harai Lebiya. View number two is Kenisa Lebeso. He brings her into his home. View number three is Pires Taliso Aleha. He puts his garment over her. They share a garment. And view number four is veiling, which in Yiddish is called badeket. That's just the Yiddish word for veiling her. So there are four different, there's different interpretations, four different views as to what Nisuin is. Once you've done Nisuin, she is now a 100% married woman. So now let's just analyze very quickly the halachic differences between the marital status of an Arusa and the marital status of a Nisua. Like what, what exactly is the difference? So number one, uh, keep in mind that in both cases, if the marriage is going to end, it needs a get. Arusa, Nisua, you need a get. It's not like breaking an engagement. In both cases, if she commits adultery, she is theoretically guilty of a capital offense. In both cases, if she has a child from an adulterer, the child is a momser. So Arusa and Asu are the same in that way. So what are the differences? So a few differences. Difference number one, this is in no particular order, an Arusa does not get a kasuva if the husband dies or divorces her uh, before there was Nisuin, and Arusa does not get a kasuva, which is the protection, we'll go over the kasuva in detail, a Nisua gets kasuva. Number two, the husband's halachic responsibility to support his wife takes effect only after Nisuin, meaning with Erusin, she is still under the... Uh, domain of either her father or, if she's older, under herself. So this is called mizonot. The obligation of a husband supporting his wife depends on nisuin, not erson. Conversely, however, uh, the right of a husband to inherit his wife if she dies is only after nisuin and not erson. So if a woman dies as an arusa, even if she's very wealthy, the husband does not inherit. Now the Torah does say, this is very rare, it doesn't come up that much today, that if a woman makes vows, she says she's not going to eat chocolate, she makes a netter, not going to eat chocolate. So the husband has the authority <coughs> to annul the vow if he does it on the day that he heard about it. Now, that's very interesting. So that, that could be a, a, lo- a long time or a little time. Meaning, if he hears about it right after sunset, he has 24 hours to annul the vow. If he hears about it one minute before sunset, he has one minute to annul the vow. In other words, it's not 24 hours. He doesn't have 24 hours. He has till the end of the day. So that could be 24 hours, that could be one minute. Yeah. Is it just knowledge or constructive knowledge? Like, actually knew or should have known? No, this is actual knowledge. Actual knowledge. Now, this does not refer to every vow, but this refers to vows that either involve physical deprivation of pleasure, such as not eating chocolate, 
or vows that impact on uh, the marital relationship, such as um, she's refusing to talk to her mother-in-law or, or whatever it would be. Now, of course, he can't force her to talk to the mother-in-law, but he can take away the vow that wouldn't be restricted. Now, the halacha is a husband has this power only after nisuin. If a woman makes a vow while she's in Arusa, it's very interesting. The power of annulment requires the acquiescence of both the father and the husband. You need two people to annul the vow. If one person doesn't annul the vow, then the vow is not annulled. Of course, that raises interesting questions because each of them has the power of annulment on the day they hear of the vow. So if they heard it on different days, like, if, you know, it might be that the father's rights have to be exercised on Monday, and the husband's rights, who doesn't hear about it until the next day, will be exercised on Tuesday. But you need both people to exercise that, that power. Now, I'm going to mention yet another thing, but again, I'm going to explain this in much more detail. Halacha envisions in a marriage a certain amount of trade-off, and that is, husband is obligated to support his wife, but that would mean that the wife turns over her earnings to her husband. Now, let me explain that this is the woman's prerogative either way, meaning, a, like, like, let's, let's assume, for example, that the woman is a lawyer, and she has a very good salary. Uh, maybe she makes more than her husband, or maybe not, that, that makes no difference, but she has a lot of money. Now, does the husband own her money? So it really depends. If the husband is supporting her, the husband is paying the food, the rent, the clothing, everything else, then her money belongs to her husband. But she has the right to say that she wants control of her money, but under those circumstances, the husband would not be obligated to support her out of his money because she has money. Now, now this sounds very legalistic in a normal, decent marriage. Husband and wife should not be fighting over this. I don't mean to suggest that in a normal marriage, these are going to be significant issues. But sometimes marriages are under stress and people need to know their rights. So the basic rule is, a woman has a right to her salary, but she can't have her cake and eat it too. She cannot say she has a right to her salary, but the husband must support her. She makes the choice, and she could change her mind. In, you know, this is not a one-time choice. She could change her mind every week. But the basic idea is she chooses between marital, uh, sp- I'm sorry, husband support and retention of her earnings. So she can either say, I want my husband to support me, or she can say, um, I will keep my earnings. Now, as I say, again, I will repeat, in, in the real world, earnings tend to be pooled. If you have a two-income family, if they're normal, the way it's going to happen is that both will contribute. In other words, it's not going to be a binary thing. The way I described it, it's binary. Either husband supports wife or wife supports herself. In the real world, Baruch Hashem, it's a lot more flexible. But in terms of rights, it's one or the other. So the point I want to make is, this is only after Nisuin. During Erusin, the husband is not obligated to support her. 
and she has no obligation to give him any control of her money. Okay, so you get the idea. In many, many ways, it is funny. Erusin kind of sounds like engagement, meaning the modern Hebrew term kind of describes what it looks like because they're not fully married, and yet, in many ways, they are fully married. They're fully married with respect to adultery. They're fully married with the need of a get. Right? So it is a real marriage. But a lot of the rights and responsibilities of marriage do not take effect until Nisuin. And Nisuin could take, you know, there are four different views. Yichad Aroi Labia, Kenisa Lebeito, Pires Taliso Aleha, putting his talus over her, or Badekin in veiling. Now, all, either, whatever your view is, whatever one of the four is, halacha is following, there are different opinions, it has to be done in front of witnesses. So you, so you, do, you do need witnesses for this. In fact, you may ask, um, I mean, even Yichad Aroi Labia, obviously uh, the witnesses are outside of the seclusion room. Okay. Now, 2,000 years ago, when Nisuin was one year after Erisin, Nisuin is when they made the party. The big party was the Nisuin party, and that's when they had seven days of rejoicing, you know, etc. Okay. So, what happened today was, and this happened again in the 1200s, and many connected to Rashi, we now have a unification of Erisin and Nisuin. The Jewish marriage ceremony of today and really over the past 800 years and this is true for Ashkenazim Spartan, this is true for everybody Hasidim, non-Hasidim is we are combining two different ceremonies in one time, at one time uh, right so unification of Erusin and Nesuin why do we unify them? Why, you know, what's wrong with the old system? So the main problem was the old system was a very great stress on a couple because she's married, but they can't consummate the marriage until the Nisuin ceremony. So this was conducive to either promiscuity or even if they live together themselves, they think they're married. They're committing a sin because there hasn't been the Nisuin ceremony. In other words, after Erson, cohabitation is prohibited until the Nisuin ceremony is done. So, in fact, you may even wonder, well, why on earth did they ever wait a year anyway? <laughs> why, why did they do it a year? The answer was it was primarily economic, that uh, either the husband or the wife had to accumulate a dowry to bring into the marriage. So they gave them up to a year to be able to do that. But even in the olden days, if they wanted to do it quicker, they could do it quicker. And that's why Rashi was metaken, Rashi enacted, that let's put it all together. Okay. So, however, even though we do keep it all together, uh, note that you should be able to identify when is she in Arusa, when is she in Asua. Now, let me point out the following. The Erusin is the ring ceremony. When a man puts a ring on his kala's finger, and declares in front of witnesses. This is the declaration. Harei at mikudeshetli. You are, behold, you are betrothed to me. 
you are sanctified to me, you are made holy to me, Vitabas zu, with this ring, if you're using a ring, if you're using a piece of gum, you would say, begum zu, right? Kidas Moshe v'Yisrael, in accordance with the laws of Moshe, the Torah, which were accepted by the Jewish people. So note, declaration, giving of ring in front of kosher witnesses, her acceptance of the ring, she could say no, right? She could say no, theoretically. Uh, her acceptance of the ring, she doesn't have to say anything, just her uh, giving her finger to him. So at that stage, she is now an Arusa. She is now an Eshet Ish. She is now a married woman. Okay. Now, for Nisuin, Ashkenazim do three of the way. Well, well, actually, Svartim and Ashkenazim each do three ways, but they do it. In, they don't have the same three. For Ashkenazim, the standard thing we do for Nisuin is Yichud Haroi Labia. So again, let, let's trace this. What happens after the giving of the ring? So we read the Kesuva. And we recite Sheva Brachos under the Chuppah. Now again, when you're sitting in the audience, you kind of look at that as the end of the marriage ceremony. It's not. It is the beginning of part two. It would have been a year after the Erson. So the beginning of part two is Sheva Brachos, followed by Yichud, Haraoi Labia. Right? The Chasan and the Kala go into a room. Two witnesses go through the room to be sure there are no hidden doors or hidden people. They are then left in that room for a certain period of time. The witnesses stand outside of the room to be sure that nobody can enter. Now, what do the chasen and the kala do in the yichud room? Well, they can do whatever they want, but typically they eat because very often the chasen and the kala were fasting until that time. They sit, they talk, uh, they can uh, you know, hug and kiss, uh, they can have some interview, they may exchange gifts. All of that is okay. But why does that make nesuin? It plugs into yichud, Hara'oi Labia. It has to be a yichud with enough privacy that they could, again, it's theoretical, they could have had, we'll call it symbolic consummation. They could have had consummation. That's why there can't be windows that, that anybody could see from the, from the outside. Okay, now how long do they have to stay? Well, once again... <laughs> Obviously, since it has to be a yichud haroi labia, so we have to kind of figure out what is the minimum amount of time that bia could be finished. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to give exact times. So that's why uh, halakhically it's between five minutes and nine minutes. Uh, either way, that's a relatively short amount of time. They typically stay longer in the yichud room. Because, uh, but the witnesses leave. In other words, after five to nine minutes, 
the witnesses are now exempt because Nisuin has been accomplished. So you don't need witnesses beyond that point. Uh, they stay longer just because uh, they want to get to know each other better, you know, whatever it would be. Okay. Now, that satisfies the first definition of Nisuin. Yichod haroi lubia. What about the second definition of Nisuin? The Chatan brings her into his home. Now, that's going to happen eventually, but we want it to happen now at the wedding, right? So here is an interesting chumrah that uh, you need to be aware of, or at least your chasa needs to be aware of. And that is, technically, there is halachic significance in the chasan owning, owning the yichud room so that he brings the kala not just into a private room, but he brings the kala into a place that he owns. Now, how do you own it? What do you mean own it? I, I, I buy uh, the hall, you know. So generally speaking, Halacha says that rental is as good as ownership. So in the contract with the hall or the show, it should actually specify the chassan is renting this room for the day of the wedding so that it is called his home. Now, if, if all you need is what Yichad Arai Labia, you didn't have to have that rental. But because you, we also want to do the second thing, Kinisa Labeso, so the Chasan has to rent. Could be for an extra dollar or a penny. He rents the Cheder Yichud. Now, the Badekin, right before the wedding, the chosan veils, puts a veil on the kala. The Yiddish word for that is badekin. And that actually comes from the chumash, although in the chumash it's very interesting, the one mention of badekin in the chumash did not involve the chosan doing it to the kala. It involved the kala doing it to herself. That's when Rivka sees Yitzchak. She takes the uh, kerchief and she covers her face. So that's not really the origin of Badekin because Badekin is what the husband does. So that fulfills the view that Badekin is Nesuin. But you'll ask me a very strong question. How can Badekin... And that's why, by the way, it is proper to have two witnesses be designated to witness the Badekin because it's part of the Nesuin. But you'll ask me a question. How can the Badekin be Nisuin? The Badekin is before the Erison. The Erison is the giving of the ring. Nisuin is what you do after Erison, right? Nisuin is not what you do before Erison, right? The veiling of the Kala is not under the Chuppah after she gets the ring. The veiling of the Kala is before she goes to the chuppah. So how could that be? We're trying to be yotze, all of the opinions, by doing all of the Nesuin things at a Jewish wedding. But how could that be Nesuin? It's even before Erison. The answer is, you see from here, a very interesting halacha, that you can do the Nesuin actions before you do the Erison actions, meaning they don't take effect. The Nesuin doesn't take effect till the Erison. 
but the action will be valid at that point. Which actually means, interestingly enough, based on that view, there is never a second where the woman is only in Arusa, because as soon as I give her the ring, so she's in Arusa, the Nesuan action of Badekin is going to make her a Nesuan, if you follow that view. Meaning, if you follow the view that Nesuan is Yichot or Kenisa Lebeso, so there is a hiatus between she's in Arusa, and until there's Yichot, she's an Arusa, and she becomes a Nesuan only then. But if you follow the view that the Badekin is, is in Nesuan, then it turns out as soon as you make Erson, she's immediately in Nesuan. And Pires Talisai, spreading my talis over her, this is not done by Ashkenazim. So in Hasidic weddings or Ashkenazic weddings, you're not going to see it. But if you've ever seen a Sephardic chasna, there actually is a concept where the chasan wears a talis, and he's, it's a very beautiful ceremony, and he spreads his talis over his wife, so the chasna and the kala are under a single talis. Uh, this is such a beautiful ceremony that you know, many Ashkenazim do it anyway. They just want to do it, and you're, you're allowed to do it. Uh, but for Svartim, it's because they actually maintain it is part of the Nesuin ceremony. And Now, this is, this is in its proper place because this is done after the ring ceremony. So after the Erisin, they will spread the talus. Okay? Now, what Svartim don't have, interesting, Svartim don't have Yichud. So, so Ashkenazim will have Yichud Aroi Labia, Kenisa Labeso, and Badekin, and veiling, but they don't have the spreading of the Tavos. Svardim will have the Badekin, the veiling. They will have the spreading of the Tavos. Uh, and uh, the Kenisa Lebesa, meaning uh, when, when uh, they don't have Yichud per se, they don't require Yichud, but they do go into a room together to eat. So that would be called the, right, so... So everybody has three out of the four, but it says it's a different, uh, different list, different group of the three. Okay, so this is the idea of the erusin and the the nisuin. Now some say the chuppah itself is the home. The chuppah is the home, which would mean the kenisa into the home of the chassan would be uh, taking the kala under the chuppah. And then you have the same problem, but I, I took the kala under the chuppah before I gave her the ring, but we go with the same idea, as I said by the Badekin, that you can do Nisuin ceremonies before. But according to that, it would be important for the chassan to walk the kala to the chuppah. And this is, this is why, you may have seen this, um, it's not so widely practiced today, but it used to be a, a, the normal minog Yisrael that if the kala is walked up to the chuppah, and there are two minhagim, is it mother-mother or, or father-mother? Right, depends. Uh, among Hasidim, it's often the two mothers take the kala, the two fathers take the chasan. Among non-Hasidim, uh, it tends to be father-mother take the, their son and father-mother take their daughter. 
And of course, in, in the situations of divorce and the like, you get all sorts of complications. Uh, but putting that aside, those are really minhagim. I want to focus on the halacha now. Now, generally speaking, the way it normally works, whoever is taking the kala, whether it's mother-mother, whether it's mother-father, whether it's rebetzin, whoever it is, they walk all the way under the chuppah. And then, the, these are minhagim, the kala encircles the chasan seven times. And uh, the mother is holding the dress, holding the end of the dress and the like. Now, that's what you'll normally see. But the older minhag of Klal Yisrael was that whoever was bringing the kala would only go up to the chuppah, not under the chuppah. Then the chassan would leave the chuppah. Now, he could not hold his kala's hands. They're not married yet. But he would stand next to her and they would march together under the chuppah. I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you've ever seen it. This is an old Minog Yisrael, uh, which is commonly not practiced today. But the idea was the chasan took the kala to the chuppah. Now, why would that be so? Why? Everything has ultimately... I mean, there are spiritual reasons for things, but things have halachic reasons too. The halachic reason is because according to some opinions... The chuppah was the home, was like the bias of the chassan. And Nisuin is, he brings his wife into the home. Which would mean, in other words, that the chassan should own the chuppah. The same idea that he has to rent. The yichad room, if that's your kinesa lebeso, he should also be the owner, or the renter at least, of the of the chuppah, so it should be his home, right? The chuppah should be a bias. That's why, by the way, some people don't like, sometimes you see that the poles of the chuppah are held by friends. Friends hold up the poles of the chuppah. So it all depends. If the chuppah is kind of just a symbol of a Jewish home, so okay, you can have people hold it up. But if the idea is the chassan is bringing him into a bias, it has to have the structure of a bias, right? It has to, has to at least resemble a porch or resemble top, top, some type of structure. It can't just be things that are being held. So you'll find that some rabbanim are machmir, that they will not, that they don't want a chuppah that is um, held up by people. They want a chuppah that can stand on the ground itself because that makes it like a bias. So I hope you see what's going on, and that is... Number one, we're combining the Erusin ceremony and the Nisuin ceremony. But number two, we try to be Yotze, the multiple opinions, although nobody does all four, the multiple opinions of what is Nisuin. Yichad Aroi Labia, Keniso Labeso, Pires Taliso Allah, he puts his talis over her, or Badekin itself. And the Badekin and the Chuppah are actually before Erison, but once again, you can do Nisuin before Erison, even though it doesn't take effect as Nisuin, till you do, till you do Erison. Now, this distinction between Erison and Nisuin, and I gave you a number of distinctions already, but one other distinction is, when must a woman cover her hair? 
there is a mitzvah d'oraisa that a married woman cannot have uncovered hair in public. Now, maybe I'll give a, I'll give a share on details of this. Meaning, there are all sorts of kabbalistic chumras and strictness. Uh, again, I'm not going, 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 going to go into that now. But under the basic halacha, the obligation of a married woman to cover her hair is only when she's in public. When she is at home with her husband and her family, according to the strict halacha, her hair can be uncovered. Again, uh, there are, the Zohar says not to, but, 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 but um, I just want to refer to the halacha here. So, when must a, a woman who's getting married, when must her hair be covered? So, we actually paskin, she doesn't have to have her hair covered until Nisuin, and Arusa could have uncovered hair. So consequently, under the chuppah, if you assume there's no Nisuin until the yichud, her hair can be uncovered. When she leaves the yichud room, where for sure there's been Nisuin, that is when her hair has to be covered. Now, there's another view that actually says that even after Nisuin, there is no chiv to cover hair until physical consummation of the marriage, which would give her until next morning or whatever. So there are different opinions. Uh, talk to your rabbi. I mean, some rabbanim will actually say she has to walk down the chuppah with covered hair because they'll look at the badekin as the nesuin. Other rabbanim say after the yichudrum, and other rabbanim say after physical consummation, which would effectively mean not until the next day. Now, I'm not going to discuss, I mean, I'll mention it, but I'm not going to discuss what is a good hair covering because that's not really our topic. Uh, Tichel versus Shetel versus Hat, all of these issues. Uh, as you know, um, many, many Svardim and many Ashkenazim in Israel are very much against wigs. They consider wigs, particularly human hair wigs, to look too attractive and too much like real human hair. In fact, they are real human hair, and therefore, they say that is not a valid covering, and the covering has to be with a kerchief, we call it a tichel, or a snood, or even a, a very big hat, if you can get a hat that covers everything. Uh, Chabad happens to have the minig the other way. Uh, Chabad, I think the Rebbe actually took the position. Not only did he permit the wig, he considered the wig to be better uh, than the tichel, because the wig can, can cover you 100% in ways that... Uh, right, so I'm not, again, I'm not here to address that uh, for some reason. Uh, it is an emotional issue. I mean, I'm constantly encountering various signs uh, directed to women. Says, woman, do you want to be a, look like a prostitute? Whatever, all, all sorts of uh, very, very strong language. Language about these things. So, okay. Um, but, but for our purposes, since, since the only point, the only reason I brought up covering hair is only to highlight an Erusin versus Nisuin distinction. So whatever way you're going to fulfill the mitzvah of covering hair does not take effect until either leaving the yichud room or, or perhaps even the next morning, depending on the situations. I mean, as you know, among Satmer Hasidim, other, 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 some other Hasidim as well, uh, the woman actually shaves her, shaves, I mean, the woman gets a, almost like a bald haircut. It's a... Uh, you know, in order that not a single hair will, will be seen or, or whatever it would be. Uh, but that's not the minog of most of Chloe Israel. Okay. 
already. So uh, this is the idea of the unification of Erusin and, and Nisuin. And now you understand a little bit what the Badekin represents and why the Badekin should be done by the husband, not, not by the father, and why the Badekin should have Edim, and why the old Minog was the Chassan took the Kala to the Chuppah, even though that's not widely practiced, uh, practiced today. Now, there are other minhagim that are associated with the wedding that are not part of the halachic structure. Uh, number one is the unterferes. Unterferes, again, is a Yiddish word that just means walking the chasen and the kala down the chuppah. Now, there's no halacha that that has to be done, but, uh, but it's an old, old minhag to do it. And usually it's parents. And as I said a few moments ago, uh, among non-Hasidim, it's father, mother, father, mother. Uh, among Hasidim, it's father, father, mother, mother. But unfortunately, today you have many, many complications. What if parents are divorced? What if a parent is not Jewish? You know, it could certainly happen. What if both parents are not Jewish? Uh, how, do we, how do we do all of this? So this, you know, the halachas here are not so clear. You don't always have halachas. You have to have a lot of common sense. And you have to have sensitivity, and uh, you want to not hurt anybody's feelings. But the basic idea is that you don't walk uh, the chasna and the kala all the way to the chuppah unless there is shalom bias. In other words, a, a divorced parent should not go all the way to the chuppah. Certainly a non-Jewish parent should not do so. But depending, you know, you're going to have to talk to, you know, Bezra Sashem, when all of you uh, will go through this, uh, if any of you have an issue, you know, you'll, you'll talk to the rabbi, talk to the Masadir Kedushin. Uh, often what will happen is they will allow non-Jew or divorced to kind of walk halfway. And then maybe they'll go back to the old custom for that case and have the chassan finish, or they'll have a Rebetzin or someone do up. So... It's not an all or nothing, meaning it's not an all or nothing that, oh, you're divorced, so you, know, you can't participate, but you don't actually bring them under the chuppah itself. Most people right now do like uh-huh. two, people, two people who are a couple who are bringing, and additionally, another person who is either Sometimes they just have that. Some, yeah, yeah, sometimes the, the rub is mockbit uh, that you don't have them at all. Uh, take them all the way. Yeah. Other times they'll allow them to be augmented with uh, other, other people. So that's called unterfira, meaning the person who brings the chasen and the kala down to the chuppah. Uh, second of all, there is a minag of candles. That when you walk the chasen and the kala down the chuppah, there are neiros. Now this is an old, old minag that's recorded, and this is based on the fact that every wedding is a reenactment of Matan Torah. When Hashem gave the Torah, there was a marriage. The marriage between God and the Jewish people. We are the Kala, and Hashem is the Chassan. Right? Every marriage is Matan Torah at Sinai. And by Har Sinai, there were Brakim, there was lightning and fire. So we have Neros even in the day, because that is a remez to Matan Torah. So that's an important thing. Uh, sometimes things happen. Sometimes a wedding dress or a, a wig or hair or whatever it gets set on fire. <laughs> the, the, things have happened at weddings, but okay. Uh, but uh, neiros are an important thing. Uh, 
A third minan is of the breaking of a glass, which is at the end of the ceremony. And uh, that's not part of the halacha of marriage, but uh, it's from a Gemara. The Gemara says that one time, a wedding, there was a lot of levity. People were behaving inappropriately. So a certain rabbi smashed an expensive glass, and that made people quiet. And the rabbi said, you know, uh, when we have the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it's not proper to have so much rejoicing. So to this very day, we break a glass uh, to think about the Beis HaMikdash, think about the Golos, to yearn for Mashiach. And both the Chassan and the Kala, sometimes they don't say it, but they're supposed to say the Pasuk, this is from Tehillim. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may I forget the use of my right hand. May my tongue stick to my palate if I don't remember you, Yerushalayim. If I don't elevate Jerusalem above the highest of my joys. Uh, it's also customary for on the chasen, and some do it on the kala as well, to put a little ash, you know, as you burn a piece of paper before the chuppah, like, just like the Indian, just like people have Ash Wednesday, I shouldn't compare it, but you put like an ash on the forehead to uh, remember the avelos, the mourning, over the, uh, the base hamikdash. Now, um, the kala wears uh, the gown that she wears, it's very, very interesting. I mean, I have never really seen a discussion of this. Um, where does the college dress come from? I mean, is it a wedding? A wedding gown seems to be a, an open imitation of what Goyim were doing. I mean, is there a Jewish? Con- I mean, obviously, you would get you would get dressed in very nice clothing. That that's not the question. But the concept of the stylized wedding gown, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, you know, I, I don't really fully understand. Uh, why it's universally accepted as proper lavush since it's identical. Of course, it's sanuak, of course, it's not identical, but it's more or less identical to what the non-Jews do. That's a little strange. But the chassan, however, there are different minhagim. Uh, the chassan often wears a kittel. A kittel is the white garment that people wear on Yom Kippur uh, and, and the like. And that's a sign of purity, a sign of forgiveness, because the day of a wedding is a forg- like Yom Kippur, a forgiveness. And that's why the kala would wear white, even if it wouldn't be a wedding gown. Uh, white is, is appropriate, it's forgiveness, uh, purity. And the kittel, there are different minhagim. Sometimes the chassan walks down with the kittel, and sometimes they put the kittel on him, under the chuppah. Again, different minhagim. Uh, and sometimes there's a curious thing, I don't know if you've ever seen this, that the chassan wears a kittel, but then he wears either a kapata, if he's a chassan, a kapata, a long coat, or just a, a raincoat, a, a coat, or even a jacket, over the kittel. So the kittel is not over his jacket, the kittel is under his jacket. And the reason that is so is it is said to be that it's a private reminder for him to do tshuva, meaning it's like, remember the day of death. Okay, so some, some want to make the kittel more private, others, others do not follow that particular rule. Um, some 
the man will also put on a talit, and I mentioned Spardim spread the talit over the, but that's after the Arison spreads the talus over the over the color. So these are again, these are these are uh, minhagim. Uh, these are very beautiful minhagim and very important minhagim, but they don't affect the validity of the marriage. Even if you didn't do it, the marriage would certainly be be valid. Okay, right. So that's kind of what the Jewish marriage ceremony is. But so now let's go a little further. So after we finish the marriage ceremony and after we have the yichud room. So husband and wife are now 100% married. They are now nesua. There's nesuin. So there's a mitzvah to have a festive meal. There's no mitzvah to have a festive meal after erusin, but there is a mitzvah to have a festive meal for nesuin. Okay, and that's where people dance or whatever they do. Uh, and at the end of that meal, we have she- uh, we have Tamazan, we bench. And we recite Sheva Brachas. So when we, when we say Sheva Brachas, it's a little confusing sometimes. We are referring to two different rituals. There is Sheva Brachos under the Chupa, which is part one of the Nesuin ceremony. And then we have Sheva Brachos for the next seven days which is part of the rejoicing ceremony. It's the same Sheva Brachos, seven blessings. But they serve a different function, meaning the Sheva Brachos under the Chuppah are an absolutely mandatory requirement of a Jewish wedding. The Sheva Brachos after the Chuppah, even the the wedding meal itself, is not part of the wedding ceremony. They're already married but it's part of the simcha. So I want to talk about some of the laws of Sheva Brachas for a while because they can be a little complicated. So we have seven days of rejoicing. And for those seven days, if a special meal is made in honor of the chasna and the kala, upon the after benching, we recite seven brachas. So first of all, let's take a few questions here. Do you have to have Sheva Brachos every day? Right? You got married. Well, well, well I'm sorry. Let, let, me start, let me start with an earlier question. What is called day one? You have seven days of rejoicing. Now, let's imagine you get married Sunday afternoon, but the marriage meal is not until Sunday night, which is already Monday. What are your, when do you start your seven days of rejoicing? Did your seven days of rejoicing start on Monday? Which would mean they would last up until Sunday night. In other words, Sunday would be your last day. Or is your first day of rejoicing Sunday, which would mean Shabbos would be your last day? In other words, I'm simply asking, do you start counting the seven days from the chuppah, from the erusin, or nesuin, let's say, or do you start counting it from the meal, the wedding meal? So actually the halacha is you start it from the chuppah. So if, um, you know, the ring ceremony was before sunset, that that counts as day one, which means you actually only have six days of festive meals. 
You don't have seven days of festive meals because day one was the day of the chuppah itself and if that was five minutes before sunset, that counts for day one. So that's one thing people don't always realize that day one, you don't always have seven days, you often only have six days of rejoicing. That's point number one to keep in mind. That's very important. Point number two to keep in mind. Do you have to have Sheva Brachos every day? Now, I know that a single person would think that's a crazy question. Why wouldn't you want to have Sheva Brachos every day? Well, you will be surprised. You will discover that as beautiful as Sheva Brachos is, they are, can also be a drain. Right? You know, you got to run here and run here and run here and run here. Uh, run here. You don't have any time to spend with each other, etc. So the big question is, is Sheva Brachos mandatory? Is it something you have to have every day? Baruch Hashem, most of the time, people do have, try to have them every day, but they're not, absolutely not mandatory. And in fact, um, the minog of you in Yerushalayim, mainly because of poverty, was they only had Sheva Brachos at the wedding and on Shabbos. They, they didn't have anything in the middle. So it's not mandatory. Now this gives rise to an interesting little discussion about the role of honeymoons in a Jewish marriage. You know, the, 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 the traditional non-Jewish custom was you get married and then you go to a private uh, place in the middle of nowhere to have a honeymoon, it's called. So it's brought down that for a number of reasons, uh, Judaism does not encourage the honeymoon right then. And the main reason is, the, I mean, the main reason is, uh, number one, at least if the kala is a virgin, as soon as the marriage is consummated and there's any, any bleeding, uh, the laws of nida kick in right away. So you're going on a honeymoon when husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate with each other, so it's better not to go to private things. And the other reason some people say is that you're, you're, you're taking yourself out of Sheva Brachos possibilities. But as I say, that's maybe not so bad because there's not an obligation. Okay. So these are the two preliminary points. Number one, day one of Sheva Brachos is the day of the Chuppah. And number two, Sheva Brachos beyond the um, Chuppah and the wedding meal, the wedding meal, which is mandatory, are not obligatory. Okay. But let's assume you want to be normal and you enjoy this, and let's assume that you want the Sheva Brachos every day. So what are the halachos of Sheva Brachos? So there are a few things. Uh, there has to be a minion in order to recite Sheva Brachos. That means 10 men who are, who are Jewish. They can be related, of course. Uh, they are Jewish. And uh, the chassan can count for one of them. So you need the chassan and nine other people. Uh, number one, uh, they are gathered together in honor of the chassan and the kala. Uh, they wash on bread. And then they'll recite Sheva Brachos at, at, at the end. Now, there's a very important halacha that in order to make Sheva Brachos, each Sheva Brachos, there has to be one new person who had not already participated in the wedding festivities. Which actually means that every Sheva Brachos has to be somebody who wasn't at the wedding, number one. And number two, 
anyone that was already at a Sheva Brechas doesn't count for the next Sheva Brechas. Now again, that doesn't mean you can't have the same person. All you need is one new person. You can have nine of the same people over and over and over and over again, but there has to be somebody new Except on Shabbos, on Shabbos we paskin that Shabbos itself is, brings newness into the world. So there is no requirement of a new face for Shabbos. During the week there's a requirement of what's called panim chadashos. Panim chadashos means a new face. Uh, you need one new face. Uh, but on Shabbos, you do not need panim chadashos. You still, you still need a minion, though. Again, I, I want to repeat. Without a minion, you cannot recite Sheva Brachos. But the requirement of panim chadashos is only one person, and on Shabbos, there's no requirement of panim chadashos. Okay, so this is the basic idea of Sheva Brachos. Now, you also don't need the whole minion to eat bread. In fact, this is very, very common. Sometimes... You might have only eight people at the Shabbat because you need two more people to come in. You look for, just like making a minion and shell. You're looking for people to come in. So you can bring people in and they, they, having mizonos, having cake would be enough to allow them to uh, join in the, in the Shabbat Brachos uh, itself. Now, here is where things get a little complicated and you need to be aware of, of the halachos here. The rule that you have seven days of rejoicing, meaning you can do Sheva Brachas for up to seven days, or six days at least, if you know, the Chuppah is, is day one. That applies if both Chassid and Kala were never married before, that's for sure, that's that simple. If Chassid and Kala were never married before, for sure they have seven days. Or, even if one of them was never married before and the other one was not. So, for example, an unmarried man married a widow or divorcee, you have seven days of rejoicing. Or a widower or a divorced man marries a woman who was not married before, you also have seven days of rejoicing. The only time you don't have seven days of rejoicing is, as far as the Gemara is concerned, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you some complications, is if the man is a widower or divorced man who marries a woman who's a widow or a divorced woman. In such a circumstance where both of them have had a prior marriage, both, both of them have had a prior marriage, we only make Sheva Brachos under the chuppah, and we make Sheva Brachos at the wedding meal, the wedding meal, but we do not make Sheva Brachos during the week. Now, I'm going to introduce some complications in a moment, but, but the basic rule is pretty clear. Uh, widower marries Single woman, seven days. Single man marries widow or divorcee, seven days. But widower or divorced husband who marries a widow or a divorcee, Sheva Brachos will be under the chuppah and Sheva Brachos will be at the wedding meal no matter what. But 
not beyond that point. Now, the modern question is very, very apparent. What if they weren't married, but they're not, you know, people had relations, people had sexual relations before. Maybe they had relations with each other or with other people. It makes no difference. So they don't fit the case of, I was married before, but I had sexual relations before. So how does that affect it? So here, there is a machlokas, but I'll just give you the luck. I don't want to confuse you with, with too many opinions. We basically paskin that even if the husband, let's look at you have to look at it from both sides of it. If the husband had not been married before, but the husband had sexual relations before, and it makes no difference if he had sexual relations with this kala, or he had sexual relationships with someone else, and it makes no difference if it was with a Jew or a guy. In other words, he has had sexual relations before, but he's getting married for the first time. We can still recite Sheva Brachas for seven days because of the joy of a first marriage. It is the joy of a first marriage. On the other hand, it doesn't work in the other way. Meaning, if the woman, let's say the man was married before, the man was married before, and the woman, however, was not married before, but she had had sexual relations, and it makes no difference if it was with him, or another man, or a Jew, or a guy. If she is not a virgin and he had been married before, she is not a virgin and he has been married before, that combination would once again limit us to Sheva Brachos under the chuppah and at the wedding meal and not beyond that point. Okay, so again, I, I, just, just, I, I know it's a little easy to forget, if both had been married before, only Sheva Brachas at the, at the chuppah and at the wedding meal. If both had been married before. If he had been married before and she's not a virgin, we also say only wedding meal, uh, chuppah and wedding meal. If, however, he is not a virgin but was not married before, then even if she was married before, you can have Sheva Brachas for seven days. Okay, so this is the complication. So you need to, you need to know this, uh, which actually therefore means, to take a practical situation, if the Chassan and the Kala were living together before marriage, so neither of them are a virgin, you can still have Sheva Brachas for seven days if this is the first marriage for the Chassan. Okay, so as a practical matter, the fact that they were living together before marriage will not stop them from seven days of Sheva Brachos uh, as long as the Chassan had not been married before. Okay, everyone gets uh, how, how, you got that, the, how you got that result. So I'll give you an actual case, and now hopefully you'll, you'll see the answer to this case. Um, 
I knew a person. Um, the man had been married before to a Jewish woman, and the man had given his wife a get. He was engaged, he was going to get married to a, a girl who had been married to a goy. You know, she, she, she was a Baal Shuva, married to a non-Jew. And then she did Shuva and, and, and the like. So the question was, Sheva Brachas for seven days or Sheva Brachas only for one day? Now, so here's the thing. He was married before. Okay. She was married to a guy, but remember, a Jew married to a guy is not a marriage. So technically, she is not a married woman, but she's not a virgin. So once again, you'll remember, if man was married and woman is not a virgin, that combination is only going to be one day. Okay? If it would have been in reverse... The husband was married to a guy and she was a divorced woman? We actually would have said Sheva Brachas for seven days because for him, it's his first marriage. See, I know the, the, the asymmetry is a little hard to understand, but this is uh, how we come out. There are many other opinions too. Now, this creates potentially, so again, anyone who needs to know this information should know it, be aware of it, and it potentially creates some difficulties. Because here's what happens. Um, a chassan and kala get engaged. You immediately have very good friends who may not know the halacha. And they start planning sheva brachos as soon as you're engaged. And sometimes, I, I, unfortunately, I'm aware of this situation. The chassan and the kala find out they're not supposed to have a sheva brachos the third day of the wedding or the third day after the wedding. But there's already invitations are sent out. A big party is planned. So... What do you do? I mean, what do you do in a situation? You just don't say the shell of So, well, that, that's one solution. Me, meaning, you're certainly allowed to have a party. Parties don't have to be canceled. You can have a party for, for anybody. So we'll have a nice party. We're just not going to say the shell of The only question is, and, and that's perfectly valid. The only question is, is that going to embarrass you know, the kala that people will wonder, well, why is there no Sheva Brachas? And then they become aware of you know, history and, uh, and, and, and the like. So, so it's good to kind of uh, you know, tell your friends ahead of time if there's going to be a problem of Sheva Brachas for seven days, it's good to inform them so they won't, they won't jump the gun and make plans with invitations and, and everything else. Okay, any, any questions about how the how the Sheva Brachas, how the Sheva Brachas work. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go back to, I'm going to go back to the Chuppah now, the Sheva Brachas under the Chuppah, which every wedding, right, every wedding has Sheva Brachas under the Chuppah, yeah. What if the woman is a convert and she, let's say, has been married before when she was not converted and then she divorced the man and converts? Yeah, so the rule is, like, the, the rule is that um, she is not, as a Jewish person, she is not considered to have been married. So she would be a non-virgin, unmarried woman, which if the husband was not married, you'd have Sheva Brachas for seven days. Mm, okay, okay, but uh, things that happened prior to the conversion. Yeah, what happened prior to the conversion does not count as a marriage. Uh-huh. <coughs> but it still means she's not a, a virgin, so, so you'd have to apply that, that, you know, yeah. the rules that I, I mentioned. Okay.
Now, the Shevet Brachas under the Chuppah, um, Ashkenazim and Sephardim have different customs. A Sephardim, one person says all seven of them. It may be the rabbi that married you, or it may be uh, you honor somebody else, but one person says everything. Uh, among Ashkenazim and, and Hasidim, uh, the custom is that we honor different people, and usually, as you know, there'll be an MC. That's, that's not a mandatory thing, but you know, someone who announces uh, different people. So you get to know, this is the Kala's uncle, this is the Hassan's uncle, this is the great rabbi. There are different titles they give sometimes. The Rav, the Gon, the Tzadik, whatever it is. Sometimes there's a certain amount of title inflation uh, in the Jewish world sometimes, uh, as it were. Uh, but, but again, Sheva Brachos is uh, a good thing because you can honor people that you couldn't honor as witnesses. When you make people witnesses, they can't be related. They cannot be related. Sheva Brachos, you can have your father, you can have your grandfather, you can have you know, different people doing it, and that's going to, be, going to be fine. So one of the questions that people ask about Sheva Brachos is, can I honor a relative who is not religious? Can I honor uh, you know, a, a non-Shomer Shabbos? Now, I couldn't have them as witnesses. Well, number one, they're related. Number two, if they're not halakhically observant, they're not kosher to be witnesses. But what about calling them up just to recite a bracha under the chuppah? Would that be permissible? This is a very relevant question. People have all sorts of non-religious relatives who know how to read Hebrew. Maybe they were religious once or whatever it is. So here, the short answer is, since these are blessings that are calling upon Hashem to open the gates of heaven and bring blessing on Klal Yisrael, it is certainly best to have people who obey the Torah and the like. So if you're asking in the first instance, is this the best thing to do? It is not the best thing to do. But, but there's always a counter argument here. And that is, if feelings would be hurt, if this would be deeply embarrassing, humiliating, that a certain close relative didn't get an honor. Now, sometimes they don't care, and sometimes they don't even, they're not even aware of this honor. So if they're not aware, you don't have to offer it to them. But if they're aware, and if they expect, and if you don't give it to them, they're going to be hurt, then in the interests of shalom, which itself opens up the gates of bracha, peace, it is mutter to give, provided they believe in God. Meaning, a non-religious Jew can say a bracha if he's maimen in HaKadosh Baruch If he's an atheist, then you cannot, you cannot give him. If Uncle Charlie wants to say a bracha, well, why would an atheist want to say a bracha, but still he wants to you know, do something. Uh, you don't give an atheist uh, a bracha. Uh, but if he's not religious, uh, it's best not to give him a bracha if, if he doesn't care or doesn't know, so you don't, don't implant it in him. But if he would be hurt, that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Don't, don't hurt people, particularly in the day of B'chasna, you want the shalom bias, and you have shalom bias by behaving in the manner of, of manner of shalom. Okay, so that's about the shalom. And by the way, this is all. This is going to be true, both for the sheva brachos under the chuppah and uh, the sheva brachos birkat hamazon at the wedding meal, and for the whole week, for the whole week, uh, whole week as well. 
In other words, uh, when, and anyone that you're giving a bracha. And this applies, by the way, to calling people up for the Torah. This applies to a lot of aspects of, of show. Giving uh, Machalel Shabbos and Aliyah the Torah, counting him for a minion. These are uh, certain Chabad houses, for sure, have to grapple with these problems all the time. Uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in many Chabad houses, which are not in strong Jewish communities, most of the minion might not be keeping Shabbos at any given, any given moment. So they have to be various decisions as to who do we count, who we don't count, who do we give aliyahs to, who do we give aliyahs to. Right? So these are, uh, so again, uh, if you are a Chabad, uh, talking to a shaliach can help you a lot in terms of how to navigate uh, some, of these, uh, some of these difficult, uh, difficult problems. Okay, now, one other thing. Sheva Brachos ends on the seventh day. Now, let, let me draw an analogy to a halacha. Yesterday was Shabbos, right? And Shabbos we eat, uh, well, actually Chabad has a minute. <laughs> Most people have a minig of suda shalish, not a minig, but a din of eating the third meal. I, uh, that's a whole other story of Chabad. But let me just raise this question. What if you began eating a meal before the end of Shabbos, but you keep on eating and it's no longer Shabbos? When you bench... Do you say the paragraph of Ritzay, which is the special paragraph of Shabbos, or since it's not Shabbos anymore, you don't say Ritzay, right? What do you do? So the rule is very, very simple. If you began your meal while it was still Shabbos, then even if you ate three hours after Shabbos, when you bench, you say Ritzay. Everything follows the beginning of the meal. And that's a well-known principle. There is, but every rule has an exception. And the exception is Sheva Brachos. Let, let's, let's take a concrete example. Let's imagine somebody got married on Monday. The chuppah was on Monday. So as I told you before, that means Monday is day one. So what is the seventh day of rejoicing? Sunday. So any meal that is made with a minion from that Monday to the Sunday, you can have Sheva Brachas. Well, let's say you called the last Sheva Brachas Sunday afternoon, it was a week after the wedding, Sunday afternoon, 3.30 in the afternoon. Sunday afternoon. People washed you have a whole minion, you have panim chadashas, you have new people, you have everything. And they actually began eating. But they didn't finish the meal till five o'clock. Which, these days, it's already the next day. You might have thought, by analogy to benching on Shabbos, that as long as you began the meal on the seventh day, you could say Sheva Brachos? Not so. If the meal is over after sunset of day seven, right, Sunday is, remember, the marriage is Monday, so Sunday is day seven. If you didn't finish the meal until sunset on day seven, you cannot recite Sheva Brachos. So, what does that mean practically? 
That means practically, you know, if you start your Sheva Brachos 15 minutes before sunset on Sunday, uh, what I would recommend is everybody should wash and eat bread. Then they should bench immediately and make Sheva Brachos. And then they can continue eating a big fancy meal for the next three hours without Sheva Brachos. In other words, what you have to do is you're going to have to defer all the good food to after the Sheva Brachos because if you wait until the food is eaten, it's going to be dark. It's the next day. Okay, I mean, this is very important. A lot of people don't know this because a lot of people think, because logically it's, it's so, that you apply the familiar rule that as long as you began the meal uh, in the right time, you can consider it a meal of Shabbos. So some people think I can, I can consider it a Sheva Brachos meal even though I didn't finish till after the seven days. Not true. Uh, the Sheva Brachos cannot be recited once it is sunset of the seventh day. Okay, so this is something to be aware of. So if you are planning, if you are hosting a last day Sheva Brachos meal, uh, be aware of this. Uh, schedule it early enough so that the meal is likely to be finished before before sunset. It cannot go into again. The eating go into the night, but the shabbat brachas cannot go into the cannot go into the night. Uh, final halacha of shabbat brachas. Then I'll let you break. And that is, you can just as I said that shabbat brachas is not mandatory beyond the wedding meal. It's not mandatory. The other the opposite is true as well. You can have as many Sheva Brachas as you want on a given day. You can actually have five Sheva Brachas in one day. Uh, there's no limit to the number of meals. You can have breakfast Sheva Brachas, lunch Sheva Brachas, a brunch Sheva Brachas, uh, a uh, dinner Sheva Brachas, whatever the different names are. Uh, because any time, of course, you'll have to have Panim Chadashas, you have to have one new person at each of those things. But as long as you have a minion and as long as you have one new person, for each meal, you can do this 10 times in a single day, uh, but you're not limited to one a day. So on one hand, you don't need even one a day, and on the other hand, you're not limited to one a day. Okay? So this is some basic halachas of Sheva Brachas. Okay, let's stop here and have a good week. Take care. Thank you so much.